Hello and welcome to the Food Navigator podcast, your deep dive into the trends shaping the European food and beverage space. My name is Ollie Morrison, a Food Navigator journalist. In the second part of the Sugar Reformulation podcast, I'll be looking at how manufacturers can approach making healthier products without sacrificing taste. Some are confident they can. The best-selling products are the least natural ones in the sugar-free arena. Others are not. Are there, are there any that have used the sugar alternatives and used them well? No, I don't think there's any. I start by speaking to Paddy Willis. Willis is CEO of Mission Ventures, the startup incubator whose projects include a scheme that targets reducing childhood obesity via healthy snacking. Another of his brands is Jim Jams, a chocolate spread that boasts 83% less sugar than its rivals. He says two-thirds of people in Europe are looking to reduce their sugar intake, but are currently dissatisfied with what's currently on the market. He contends that agile challenger brands are best placed to quickly respond to this demand. Consumers, he says, would rather have a little of something naughty than a lot of something that isn't that exciting. Sugar substitutes like Meltatol offer an excellent way to tap into demand, he says. What we've seen over many decades now is that, the, broadly speaking, the food industry has kind of fallen into a, um, an area of complacency. Um, you know, sugar is a relatively cheap ingredient these days. It's very different from what it was like back in um, you know, centuries ago. Um, and it becomes a very simple um, staple to add to pretty much anything um, uh, to improve its consumer appeal. Um, and the reality is, is that uh, we are a better educated um, population these days. And I know research um, has shown that about two-thirds of people living in Europe prefer move towards and, and actually are, are trying actively to reduce their, their sugar intake, um, which is great. Um, but it's, it's, it's confusing to people because you know, sugar, sugar uh, results in or appears in so many different forms. Um, and it really has to become the the new bet noir, bet noir rather. It's the you know it's, it's um, taken over from fat as the sort of the the, the demon of the industry. Um, and the reality is, is that if you look at the way that uh, change and innovation has occurred throughout throughout the food industry over the last say, decade, what's really been the driving force is not necessarily somebody sat in a um, glass tower somewhere as part of a large food group um, thinking about how, how they can take certain ingredients out of the product. Um, it's typically, and this is very much reflected in the work that I see through through Mission Ventures um, and my own experience as a co-founder of Plum Baby um, when we launched back in 2006 is that it's driven by need, um, either a parent or a, a consumer who is dissatisfied with what's in in the market and uh, we've seen that a number of times with brands that we work with where typically parents uh, particularly if we're talking about the childhood obesity challenge parents who said look actually I'm, I'm really shocked at how much sugar is in this jar of chocolate spread I, I'm gonna see if we can't do something better than that and then lo and behold you've got Jim Jams uh, appears on the market about five years ago and is now in all the major supermarkets and, and in the hotel groups uh, uh, as a, a challenger brand to um, the, the world's largest hazelnut uh, chocolate spread um, with 83% less sugar, but still winning great taste awards. Um, so, you know, why is it that, that it takes a couple of anesthetics um, to give up their jobs to do this, to shift, shift the industry? 
Um, and the reality is it's, it's simply down to the fact that people are not prepared to settle for what they already have available on the shelf or in the store cupboard um, and seek to make change. And, and that's one of the most refreshing things and the joyful things I find of working um, with young brands is that they, um, because for the most part, and this is the, the, the thing, and this is the case when we launched Fun Baby, is that we didn't come from the food industry, so we didn't know how, how hard it was. But it also meant we didn't live within any particular um, paradigm of how things are done. And so you take risks and you, and you say, well, surely we can do it another way. Um, and a really good example of that, a very current one, is the way that industry, manufacturing industry in particular, is responding to the COVID-19 challenge. And people are suddenly able to create respirators um, when normally they'd be working on Formula One cars or, or Ubers or whatever. So I think it's, um, uh, it, it's, it's when people are faced with challenges that, uh, sorry, faced with choices that they're unhappy with, um, and particularly when it comes to offering options uh, to their children that you see real transformation drive. And, and that's what the industry needs to, um, to catch up with, really. Uh, and, and that's why we, we're particularly proud of the work we do with Mission Ventures to try and, uh, try and help enable that. Uh, others that we've worked with in, in a similar vein um, would be, I mean, if I take, take consider something like Naturelli. Uh, Naturelli does uh, a range of um, uh, pouches with uh, juicy jelly. Uh, and they've also introduced more recently in the last year or two a, um, um, an all-natural jelly in a pot um, to take on the likes of heart um, and And it's, it's again, they have, have a, a, you know, parents just have a choice after school snacks uh, and then thinking, really, you know, this must be, must be possible to do it better. And it's, you know, inevitably, this comes with a price premium, uh, which is uh, one of the things we're looking to, to try and uh, work on through the Good Food Fund and the accelerator associated with that. But it is possible for people to come up with products that taste as good or are as familiar to the consumer as the, uh, the everyday, um, uh, the everyday brands. Have they technically reduced the sugar? Whilst still providing a, a great tasting product. So yeah, so Jim Jams, as I say, is about 86% less sugar than the leading brands, and uh, they've used maltitol uh, as their sweetener, as a natural sweetener. Um, and seriously, put that in a blind tasting with with kids or adults actually as well, uh, and you really wouldn't know um, which brand was which. So I think it, you know they've uh, all of this is contract manufactured for them. They're not manufacturers themselves. Um, they're they're taking these ideas, they're working with specialists um, to help them to achieve the balance they're seeking and then um, working on a, a brand which can be genuinely authentic. Um, and, and I think when it comes to brands like these uh, and others that are, that are um, challenging the marketplace, it's all about transparency. You know, consumers are, are savvy, um, they're confused often, but they know they can smell bullshit. Um, and I think it's really important that any brand that's working in this space um, is sensitive to that, that they are transparent in their communications. Um, they don't try and make any claims that, that are completely uh, unsubstantiated. Uh, they don't try and befuddle or confuse consumers. Um, and also, they have a real purpose. And so, hence, you know, if you are a family that's risked everything to create a business and create a brand, um, that, that has true mission and purpose behind it. Uh, and that's often a lot stronger and much easier to, um, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's easier to create that than it is for many large corporate companies that are, you know, teams of people who are charged with coming up with innovation and, and, and category growth. Willis stresses, though, that taste really is key. 
Nestle had a product, um, a milky, uh, milky bar. Um, um, the Walsams. Um, yeah, and Thank you. Yeah, Walsams, which um, I believe was, was claiming to be 30% uh, less sugar. Um, and I think it got withdrawn earlier this year after only a couple of years in the UK market. I think that's partly because the UK is not really bought very heavily into this concept to produce sugar chocolate. And that, that again, I think is another point. It comes down to consumers are willing to indulge. Um, they'd like to indulge healthily if they can, but they would rather have a little bit of something naughty um, than a lot of something that's not terribly exciting. And, and taste is, I can't emphasize enough how important it is. I mean, it's an obvious thing to be saying in any sort of food-oriented um, audience, but taste is so important because if you don't terribly like something, you're not going to go back for it. Um, there won't be any repeat purchase uh, and a product will, will fail. Um, and clearly that's what's happened in the case of, uh, of, of Walsam. So, and I think, again, that's where the difference for the young brands, the small brands, is that they they can be challenging. They can take these, these risks, but they don't have to work. You know, they've got no one else to answer to, really. But are consumers prepared to pay a slight premium for these products from smaller challenger brands? Uh, well, I mean, okay, so, the, I mean, just going back to Jim Jam's example of the moment, for a moment, I mean, they are on shelf at pretty much the same price um, as their major competitors. So it is possible for people to do this at a, uh, a price point that's, um, that's acceptable. The, 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 the broader issue, of course, is that um, most healthier products that get launched are inevitably, um, if certainly, and almost always, if they're coming out of a small company, will be more, uh, more expensive. Um, and this is a, a huge challenge for for the food industry and society at large because um, the, the work we're doing on the Good Food Fund, which has been funded by Big Society Capital and, and Guidance St. Thomas Hospital, or sorry, Guidance St. Thomas Charity, um, is is all focused on the fact that there is this issue around um, how do you get people to shift their behaviour, and that's really hard. You know, behavioural change is not something that people are very easy easily um, uh, inclined to adopt. Um, so you try and do it in small incremental steps. And, and, and the challenge we're, we're facing there is how do you take healthier challenger brands? Um, so in a market-led solution, how do you help them to achieve price points um, that would make them accessible uh, to lower-income families um, to give them better options? Because it's the, the fact that... Um, uh, healthy food is generally speaking more expensive. Uh, lower income families, particularly um, in, in urban areas, are more likely to um, have a higher proportion of their shopping come from convenience stores, and, and convenience stores don't always have the healthiest ranges on offer. So you get this compound effect, and therefore that's why you see in, in um, the boroughs of um, Solid, which is the backyard of a charity, where a lot of the focus for some of the training we're doing will be going on, is um, you know, you have a situation where a child in uh, only, only I think it's 10% of children in in Dulwich Village, for example, would be would be leaving primary school as obese or overweight, but that rises to 33% in Camberwell Green. Um, so there, there you have a very stark example, and this is what the charity and, and big society capital are, are focused on: is how do we try and find measures? Um, and our work is only a very small part of a much bigger jigsaw that they're funding. But how do you, how can you find measures that can try and address this um, this challenge? And so the work we will be doing will be having, and we have a call out at the moment um, until the end of this month for brands to apply to the Good Food Fund, um, is to uh, establish um, a full understanding of their cost base, 
um, look at what the opportunity is, which brands are they competing against, uh, and, we've, and we've got a particular focus in the Accelerator on healthy snacking, healthier snacking, and particularly that sort of uh, primary school age child. How can we help um, that brand to be appealing? I mean, in the broadest con- context, as in the brand is something that that family from a low-income family, we're talking people on households on less than £20,000 income, but they feel um, is, is, is for them, it's not exclusive, um, and also that it's at a price point which is acceptable. Um, so the only way that we can really do that is to test various hypotheses in the field with price points, um, look at the branding, look at the response um, from, uh, from consumers, and then see what can be done to, um, through scale to engage um, uh, lower price points for ingredients, lower, lower price points for contract manufacturing, uh, and then on doing that, create a, a business which is economically viable for investments, um, but also one that can start to deliver on a more mainstream basis than where it might have initially have sought to launch itself and to scale itself, which will be through the, the usual sort of more middle-class retail options. So that's a, it's a huge challenge, um, but, you know, this is one of many um, approaches um, and, and this is a pilot scheme that's been funded to uh, test this over the next 12 to 18 months with a view that if this does start to show impetus and, and, and uh, it's moving the dial on, on, on the challenge, then um, the intention is to create a much bigger fund that would do more work across more categories and, um, and, and on a fully nationwide basis. So hopefully that, that gives you a feel for the way that's working and what we're trying to do in the context of um, bringing uh, more scalable businesses um, into the market. You know, we often talk about ourselves um, as building better challenger brands, you know, and, and that our programs are run by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs because we're trying to turn the mountain of value that we collectively sit on as people with probably getting on for more than 80 years now, industry experience and, you know, 50 million pounds worth of our own exit values from brands that we've created. Um, we're trying to see how do we play that back in a way that is beneficial to the founders of these companies seek to find their way into the market and grow and scale and eventually achieve that exit. But at the same time, to be able to offer that um, insider knowledge, if you like, of the world of SMEs and the world of startups to people who spent their, their lives in the corporate world and for whom this is sometimes a very challenging area. And, and yet they are, in many cases, quite spooked by the fact that you look at various categories. I look back at baby food, my old category from plant baby days, but when we sold in 2010 to uh, Darwin Private Equity, we had no, um, we, we had never aspired at that point to think that Plum could be bigger than Heinz, which was the, the market leader. And yet Ella's Kitchen, that was smaller than us when we sold in 2010, is now the market leader in the UK, bigger than Heinz and every other brand um, to boot. So, you know, and again, look at the uh, Schweppes and, and Fever Tree, Schweppes, I grew up with Schweppes, and it was always the, you know, that was the, the mixer the premium mixer. And now, of course, they've been overtaken by, um, they've been overtaken by um, fever trees. So that's the, you know, really good examples of how businesses in less than probably 15 years can suddenly topple um, somebody who sat at the top and had that crown for decades. Um, and that, that is the challenge, you know, where, where big businesses are and, and their brands are losing market share in growth categories to challenger brands that are nipping around their heels and doing that in a way that they don't fully necessarily understand. They don't understand how they can be so fleet of foot, how they can make these risky decisions and get away with it, and how they can get so much done on, on a sort of guerrilla marketing budget um, when you know, that's not the way it's been done traditionally within the corporate field. So that's what we look to try and do is to be that sort of pivot point around how we can engage the, the, 
the collateral um, power, if you like, of the corporate, so their treasury, their balance sheet for investment, and and um, some access to uh, technical expertise and maybe some of their um, distribution contacts, but actually keep them um, um, at arm's length from the from the young brands over a period of years, whilst we continue to work with them to help them to get to a point where they deserve that opportunity to scale into the corporate world, or if it's not. Uh, they can maybe be exited somewhere else and the money can be recycled into another project. What I think is inter- interesting about those examples is that it kind of illustrates how big food gets, gets shaken up, not by government targets, but by disruption. Yeah, and, that, and that's why it's such an ex- exciting area to work in, because you're then seeing um, the pull effect, if you like, in the consumer market, whether it's the founders who get into the market in the first place, try and affect change for their own personal reasons, um, and, and, and the people that they then bring with them as consumers. Uh, and you know this sort of not settling for second best anymore, um, and, and and with that then does come the drive for change. And um, I think um, I think it was Bain that a couple of years ago did research which showed that over a period of I think it was five years, possibly ten, um, the top 100 food brands in the US had lost something like a billion in revenue to challenger brands. That's a huge stack of money that's no longer coming into your business, which might be operating on modest margins anyway. Um, and when your core is and, and your management team are all focused on trying to keep that core business alive, it's really hard to then give license to people to go off and do something completely left field, which is actually to go and create the kind of brand that could be disruptive to your core. So if you see somebody else that's doing it, um, then ultimately what what you know will typically happen is there's a race on them um, between the market leaders to try and attract and to win over that, uh, that brand to their to their portfolio. Um, but the advantage of the work we're talking about with the joint venture approach is that that's a relationship which is engendered and built over uh, a period of years. Uh, and so the natural point of exit should really be to that corporate partner if um, uh, if, if they've been a part of the growth strategy for for the small brand. Um, but I think you're right, you know, that there, there, there's a certain amount you can do by saying, right, you know, you can have to reduce salt or sugar, et cetera, from your recipes and that's a good, you know important I think the government gives that level of direction but really the more dramatic um, impact and the bigger driver is what the impact on your market share and your overall margin if you're starting to see um, brands emerging um, out of the woods and suddenly they're you know giving a proper run for your money. Others have a different view about reformulation however Andy Blacksendale, a.k.a. the Sweet Consultant, advises the confectionery industry on many matters, including how to cut sugar content, though he doesn't think it's worth doing at all. What kind of advice do you typically give to brands when they're, when they're looking to reformulate? Yeah, personally, I think, it, I think it's false. Um, the, only way, the only way to really reformulate is to use sort of unnatural chemical type compounds like sugar alcohols, polyols, intense sweeteners, and all things like that that are man-made. Um, and listen, it's, it's the wrong way to go. As I've said before, this should be down about educating people to enjoy the treat because at the end of the day, confection is a treat. It's not a staple diet. So why should it need reformulating if it's a treat? People just should be taught to eat less of that particular thing. How do you get people to think like that? Well, no one's educated in it anymore. Nobody has uh, any more. We, me and my wife's a teacher. We were talking about this the other day. No, uh, starting from an early age, people, the kids should be educated, and they're not anymore. If you're really insistent on it, then you need to look at the alternatives. There's, there's sugar replacers. 
because the sugar performs two functions in something like that. It's a sweetener and also a booking agent. And there's not one other product that you can just replace the sugar with. You need to use a bulking agent and then a sweetener on top. There isn't one sort of sugars like the magic, you know, yeah. magic products that just like that gelatin and jellies. It, it's got this it's a similar sort of uh, problem. When you come to replace sugar, you can't just replace it with one thing. So then you've, you're going down the artificial roots of sugar alcohols, which have a laxative effect, intense sweeteners, which are linked to all, all kinds of nasties. That's the Haribo, um, you know. the laxative. Is that is that why a lot of brands are drinking? Because they just find there's there's nothing to replace. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because you wouldn't, if you, I mean, if, if you can have absolutely nothing else because you've got a medical condition, for instance, then fine, thirty grams a day, you know. Um, but why can if you can only have thirty grams, why don't you just train people just to eat thirty grams of the normal one? If, you know, if they're able. Because 30 grams is nothing. Mm. So, um, so if you, you could easily consume, you know, enough to make yourself quite, um, not ill, but discomforted, yes, <laughs> before you know it. Name me some brands and products which are, which have got it right. Which have, are, there, are there any that have used um, the sugar alternatives and to use them well and done a good job of it? No, I don't think there's any. I don't, I don't I, 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 I just don't like them. Mm. Um, I think there's this whole thing. There's not really. I mean, well, Haribo, Haribo's gone into it now. They've got some, some of the, some sugar-free and reduced sugar. But also, under the law, you're not allowed to, to include sugar and intense. You can't reduce the sugar and put this other stuff in. It's either one or the other. Like in drinks, you can take the sugar out have a little bit of sugar left in and use an intense sweetener in confectionery you can't it's, it's not in the uh, in the rules this is a bit depressing so, so we've either got to eat less or or yeah. eat, or yeah. eat stuff so the, way, the way it's been legis- the way it's been legislated yeah unfortunately and there's still that, that, that golden golden egg is the, is the one the one of those products that doesn't have a laxative effect and isn't one at the moment Some, you know the sugar with fibre which also which you can do that's still doesn't have a, you know, still has an unpleasant effect on your, on your, on your guts. What about if you replace with fruit? Fruit's still full of sugar, even though it's natural. It's still got loads of sugar in it. <laughs> if you look at the, the, if you if you take a concentrated fruit juice that's been, you know, you're talking 65 percent sugar in one of them. So there's no, there's no, no benefit apart unless you want to make a natural claim. There's, there's no benefit. Um, I did some work on some gummies few years ago that used an apple syrup so you could say it was 100% fruit but that apple syrup was something like 80% sugar you know from from the apples obviously fructose or glucose but it's still nevertheless sugar so it's kind of uh, defeats the object really unless you want to make a high fruit claim which is a different thing altogether so how how far Away are we? If maybe, maybe we're not at all, but do you, do you see a situation where the confectionery big boys could could reformulate without without shrinking and, and using sugar replacements and still have a decent product? We're not, we're, no, there's nothing at the moment. That's the like I say, that's the magic the golden egg. If you want the ultimate goal is to find that whatever that would be. I'm not I'm not aware of anything at the moment. Um, from the bulking side, there's just 
things like stevia, which is a natural, a natural intense sweetener, from that's from plants, but that has no bulk. That just makes things sweet. So you've got to find something else that, that makes the bulk of the product, which is where the problem lies. This is a bit depressing. It's not, I don't think. It's not depressing at all. Sugar's a good natural, uh, you know, cane sugar is a good natural product. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's how it's perceived, how it's you know, advertised and whatever else. It should be a change of mindset rather than change of why bother to refund. Plus, all these things are much more expensive than sugar. You know, it's sugar, sugar straight from the, from the um, sugar cane or from the sugar beet without it being refined, particularly. It's a, it's a good natural product. Because in nature, there's no shortage of it. doesn't do any harm unless you eat loads. So, why can't everyone just say everything in moderation? Give me some other thoughts on how we could change that mindset though bear in mind um you know it'll be it'll be people in the food industry listening to this well make a product that's you know unashamedly got lots of sugar in it because it's complex to me but then put in in put in it things like natural colors fruit fruit juice fruit derivatives a little bit of fiber you know make it as good as it can be for what it is and then spread the message that this is not stable diet. This is a treat. Um, you know, have this after meals. Wash your teeth after you've eaten it, and things like that. Don't eat too much of it. It's got. To, it's got to go back to basic understanding of, of food and nutrition into people to make them aware. You know that they can't eat two kilos of smarties every day. Expect to live long. That kind of. Thing. Why is there the obsession with reformulation then? Apart from. Because we've been told we have to do it. Um, yeah, I, I pass. I've no idea. Because to me, that doesn't make sense. Mm. Substituting, um, you know, man-made chemicals for natural ones that, that have undesirable effects. And even the, those polyols are still like half the calories of sugar. So it's not really a massive benefit to calories. It, it's, it baffles me. It really does. <laughs> I think it's uh, that someone's searching for perfection. And someone ill-advised in... in setting the targets for, for products like confectionery um, to say reformulate when, when they should be looking at it a different way looking at it in a different, from a different angle not reformulate just re-educate Rend Platings the CEO of Sugarwise the International Certification Authority for Sugar Claims on Food and Drink that assesses foods and beverages on the basis of their sugar claim says consumers should not be and are not put off by sugar substitutes the brand Red Chocolate, for example, uses erythritol, polydextrose, stevia and maltitol to dramatically reduce the calories, fats and sugar compared to conventional products. And, she says, it tastes better than the real thing. Can you yes. give me some examples of reformulated products which you think have worked? There are some products which are not just good, but pretty brilliant, like as in better than the regular one like much better than the regular one. So for example, I mean, this is because I've got a bit of a world view because we've certified over 600 products in 70 countries. There's a Lithuanian chocolate bar called Red Chocolate. It's lowering calories, substantially lower in calories, lower in fats and lower and has no added sugar, right? And tastes better than a normal chocolate. I would, most people have said, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal innovation. What's in it? So they are chemicals that are, so, you know, you, you're not going to 
you know, in typically, um, with, with you get when you get this sort of development and innovation, and it really does do a very good job, if not an exceptional job, if not a better job, some form of chemistry is involved. And it does worry people and, and freak them out a lot, but there's nothing, you know, when we've, we, we've looked at and evaluated that bar, it has, in, it has ingredients such as maltitol um, and um, uh, stevia. Does it have stevia? I can't even remember. Macadamia nuts. It's got various ingredients in it, not all of which are natural. And this is a big, um, this is a big concern for a lot of people. Um, but it doesn't affect people's uptake because the best-selling products are the least natural ones in the sugar-free arena. So, um, so actually, when people want something really natural, they tend to buy the sugar version. So it's, it's not a great positioning to position against sugar with a me-too natural position, which is another story. She names other brands she believes are making a success at sugar-free innovations – though these don't include products that attempt to cut the sugar content by, say, 30%. Clearly, I'm sugar conscious. My six-year-old's never had any sugar. I'm a sugar conscious consumer. It's the same reason that if I were vegan, I wouldn't buy a meatball with less meat in it. Maryland has done an amazing reformulation on their sugar-free cookies, right? Now, actually, the kids could all tell which cookies have sugar. However, many of them actually preferred the sugar-free ones. And... And most and all of them pretty much said, well, they would eat the, the sugar-free ones if they were there. Like they would definitely eat them. They would definitely rather have them than, you know, um, something else completely if they wanted a biscuit. So that was interesting, definitely. And, and I've done a similar thing with the chocolates um, and some chocolate spreads. Um, so we've done similar things there. And yeah, they, they do like them for sure. Now, people are making the product. There's, you know, if you look at Kraft Heinz, they've done extensive reformulation. They've now got no sugar added um, tomato ketchup. Um, Asda has got an excellent no sugar added, um, no sugar, no salt tomato ketchup. You know, these, this is, these are hugely large sources of, of sugar in many children's diets. And there's now, you can now buy the 67p um, from Asda. And no, no sugar, no salt, ketchup, which kids love. They're absolutely, absolutely fine. Um, Heinz is a bit more expensive, around the £2 mark, but still incredible reformulation. They've reformulated their beans. Beans were, were an issue where we found in schools a lot of children were consuming unnecessary excess sugar um, and, and actually just changing them to no sugar-added beans made a huge difference, made the difference between them meeting the standards and completely failing or, you know, having a, something like, you know, replacing ketchup and, and beans can make a difference between them being double the recommended guidelines and on at them. So it's quite substantial. So those are some other sort of industry examples. She concludes that companies should embrace the opportunities that are there by providing sugar-free innovations that are accessible, affordable, and appealing. The companies that I think will do the best out of this are the ones who really embrace this as an opportunity, don't just look upon it as a social obligation, but really embrace it as an opportunity and, and see this growing volume of people who are interested in, you know, just having better health and lifestyle, but for it to be easy for them as well.
Thanks for listening to the Food Navigator podcast. Join us next time.